sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Brad. I'm one of your pastors And we are in a series entitled, Jesus is Better, as we study the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is a very, very deep book as we look into uh, the doctrine and understanding who God is and what He's done. And the passage that we're studying today uh, speaks to the fact that Jesus is our perfect elder brother. Jesus is the perfect elder brother. Now, as you hear that, and you think about an older brother, some of you might have a little panic attack or some flashbacks, you know, to wedgies and uh, wet willies and head noogies and all the things that brothers or older siblings love to terrorize us with. Yes, or maybe you were one of those and you need to repent right now. Um, I was a younger brother and my job in life was not to terrorize. My job in life was to aggravate, literally to annoy in any way and every way possible. That's what little brothers do. I can remember when we would finish the paper towel roll. Kids, this was before the internet, okay? <laughs> Lived in Alabama. When we would finish the paper towel roll, I would take it and I would get a Sharpie and literally write on it, Brad's aggravating horn. And I would walk around the house with it. And the best part of the year was around Christmas time when the Christmas paper was done. I'd get one of those bad boys and I would just come up with every annoying noise possible until my brother would chase me down, break it, or either he would threaten to break me, one or the other, you know? Now, siblings have this kind of unique bond, especially those who would look up to their older brothers. Because older brothers have this way, if they're good brothers, uh, they have this way of going in front of us. And so when you show up at school, they've kind of, they're like pioneers. They've already made a path for you. You know, you have a namesake. They look out for you, right? They're the only ones who can beat you up. True? No one else but older brother. Older brothers, they watch out for us. And then the big idea that I want us to wrap our minds around today is that we can know God is trustworthy because Jesus is the perfect elder brother. He's the perfect elder brother. And I hope that you'll leave today 
with this as kind of another tool in your gospel tool belt, another resource that as you have opportunity in your own life, when you need to preach the gospel to yourself, that you'll be reminded, Jesus is my perfect older brother. He is for me. He is not against me. And in every way, he is on our side. Three points that I want us to look at today from this text. Three ways that Jesus has proven he's the perfect elder brother. The first way comes in verses 10 through 13. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Jesus is not ashamed of you. Let me read through the text again, 10 through 13. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist... He, meaning God, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's speaking of Jesus. Now, some of you may be concerned when you hear Jesus was made perfect through suffering. I mean, just that line in and of itself, it's a little worrisome. Perfect? How do you... That's ironic. How do you become perfect through suffering? And how did Jesus need to become perfect? Wasn't he the son of God? Wasn't he perfect from the beginning? The writer is speaking to the fact that Jesus was made perfect, not in character. He was without sin. But he was made perfect in his office of Savior and Rescuer. He was made to be the perfect sacrifice for you and me. The perfect Savior. The perfect priest if you will. A priest is someone who represents us before God. And Jesus is perfect in doing that because he understands everything about us. And he's not ashamed of us. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That someone would understand everything about you and yet not be ashamed of you in any way. I think that's one of the scariest things in relationships that those who know us best are those who can do the deepest harm. And that's why we're scared in marriage. We're relationally scared. But Jesus is not ashamed of us. He knows us intimately. He's the perfect Savior. Um, He's opened the way for us to God. He's unlocked the door of salvation. He's endured suffering on our behalf. Now, on whose behalf? Last week I heard someone say, and this is a regular phrase that that I hear, we're all the children of God. We're all God's kids. Anybody ever heard that before? Yeah. And in the most generic sense of the word, that is true. But only in the most generic sense of the word. Yes, we are all humankind. All of humanity are children of God. But make no mistake about it. God is not in a fatherly relationship with unreconciled sinners. In fact, the Bible says that unreconciled sinners are rebels against God and that His wrath abides on them. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God is our perfect high, Jesus is our perfect high priest. He's opened the door of salvation. He's made a way for us. He's not ashamed of us, but he's not ashamed of those who, are, who have bowed their knee to him. 
And I don't know what's going on with the lights, but they'll be okay. He's not ashamed of us, but he's not ashamed of those who have humbly come before him and declared their need for a Savior. And that's not the whole world. That's not the people that we see who are protesting in Charlottesville. The fruit of their lives shows that they are not followers of Jesus, but instead the fruit of their lives shows that the works of their lives are satanic and evil because they do not know the love of the Father. You say, how can you judge that? I just judge it by their fruit. There's no judging. I'm just making an observation. We know that we love God because His love has been poured into our hearts, and as a result of that, we love others. If you don't love others, really easy. Then you don't know the love of God. And Jesus has adopted us. Ephesians 1.5 declares that to be true. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, begin to wrap your minds around this. When I say Jesus is the perfect elder brother, you've got to understand that's just not a phrase or an analogy. It's literal and true. Because of Jesus, because he was made perfect as the perfect high priest, he suffered and died on our behalf. He lived a sinless life. He was crucified for us. And as a result, the scriptures say, God has adopted us. I don't know if you have a family member who's adopted, but you can just look around the room and you see this beautiful picture of the gospel because there's so many different families where children have been adopted. And here's what's so beautiful about that. We get a physical picture of the spiritual reality that's true in the heart and life of every believer that we have been adopted because of Christ. That God has chosen us. That He has predestined us according to His will. Some people get really kind of shaken up about that word predestined. It means it should bring great comfort into our lives because it means God has chosen you. And here's the beautiful thing about adoption. Kids who are adopted don't choose their parents. It doesn't work that way. Parents choose their kids. And God has chosen you. Because of Jesus' perfect life and perfect death, God looks at you and He is not ashamed of you. Because He sees you through the blood of Jesus. He's not ashamed. And so no matter what your past is, is covered by Jesus' blood. If you've come to know Him. If you've repented of your sins, no matter what your present is, you aren't judged according to your works. Instead, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness. No matter what you do in the future, the scriptures say there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Again, intimately known and unashamed. An amazing relationship that we share with God. And here's the bonus that comes with that. You know, I use this weird word in the title Jesus is the perfect elder brother. Like, why put elder in there, right? Like, why can't we just say he's the older brother? Elder means something. Use that specifically. In this Jewish context, to be the elder brother meant everything. You have all the rights. You have all the privileges. You have all the literal inheritance. It comes to you. You're it. And the Scriptures tell us in Romans 8, 17... The scriptures tell us that we are now co-heirs with Christ. 
meaning everything that Jesus has in terms of his rights and privileges and inheritance are now ours. That's amazing that we are now brothers and sisters with Jesus. Romans 8, 17 says we are co-heirs with Christ. Do you get that? Do you know when you struggle in your unbelief, when you need to remind yourself of the gospel, do you get the fact that Jesus is your brother? Did you know that? That Jesus is your brother. It's amazing. When you come to think of that, it changes the whole dynamic of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and it changes the whole dynamic of who we are. Because if we are co-heirs with Christ and we are brothers and sisters with Jesus, then what does that mean we are with one another? It means we're a family. In the deepest sense of the word, that the family ties that we share together are far deeper and so much more grounded in the love of Jesus and in his work on the cross that some of us will be family if we know him, all of us will be family for all of eternity. We can't even say that about some of our own blood brothers and sisters. Do you realize that? The ties that you have with those who you have come to know through Jesus are far greater bonds than the bonds that we hold even with our family members who don't know Jesus. So what that means is, it means we're family. So you, so you can look to the person on your right and you can say, hey, cuz. You can. You can look to the person on your left and you can say, hey, brother, hey, sister. It gets kind of weird if your mom's there, but it's, you know, hey, mom, hey, sister, same thing, you know. We're, we're family. We're tied together because of Jesus. And when we see news like we've seen lately, it should rip our hearts out. Because when we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ, we shouldn't think first or primarily about ethnicity or race or culture or how much money we have or don't have. No, we're family. That's far deeper than any other cultural characteristic the world could give us. And that means that in America... We're really immature. Because when you look at our churches, church growth experts will tell you, ah, oh, you can't have a church that's got everybody in it. You can't have a church that has rich and poor. You can't have a church that's got black, white. You, you, you can't, we, we live in these homogeneous units. And so that's the best way to grow a church. That's not the way God's choosing to grow his church. And if you have problems with people, Listen, if you don't have a lot of money and you have this deep disdain and hatred toward the rich, that's evil. If you have a lot of money and you refuse to let go of any of it and you refuse to share with the poor or you refuse to rub shoulders with the poor or you refuse to have the poor in your home, that's evil. God tells us that as we look at people, we shouldn't look at them according to what they own, according to what they have. All throughout the Scriptures, we see the righteous rich and the unrighteous rich. All throughout the Scriptures, we see the righteous poor and the unrighteous poor. We're all 
sinners in need of a Savior, we all should humbly find ourselves at the foot of the cross. And when we see stuff like this going on in Charlottesville, we should reject it for what it is and call it evil. It's satanic. Read the book of James. You'll figure out what I mean. And we show a picture to the world when we spend time with one another, no matter our culture, no matter our background, when we get over all these little ancillary worldly issues and we just love one another and we begin to share from the wealth and the riches that God has given us. And I don't just mean financial. You know, that could mean our gifts, our abilities, our time, our talents. It's one of the reasons why in the beginning, we didn't begin with a big crowd of people when we started the church. That's one way to start a church. In Midtown, we felt like God was calling us to begin in a living room, face-to-face, life-on-life, and to try to figure out what it means to make disciples and to love Jesus there and then let it grow. And by God's grace, it's slowly grown. And my hope, our hope and our prayer is that we would continue to impact Midtown and to impact Memphis, but not just with numbers, but to impact Memphis with a picture of what the gospel expressed truly means. All of God's people and all of God's children gathered at the foot of the cross, worshiping Him despite our differences, which are huge at times, which do cause fractions, which do cause us to struggle, but that we would be willing and able to say, in light of the cross and in light of Jesus, all those things are small. And I'm willing, in the same way that Jesus showed grace and mercy, to show grace and mercy and say, you are my brother in Christ. What's up, cuz? Come on in. Jesus isn't ashamed of us. We should never be ashamed of one another. All right, I spent too much time. Really quick. Second way, Jesus has proven he's a perfect elder. He's defeated death. Now you hear that, and and I'm going to be quick on this point, but when we hear that Jesus has defeated death, we go, oh yeah, Easter, do that. Yep, the cross and the resurrection. Got it, check. No, Jesus has defeated death. We have no idea what sin did to our lives. Sin fragments every relationship within us. It fragments our vertical relationship and our horizontal relationships. Sin, my friends Jim and Rich like to say that that sin is parasitic. That, That Satan, I mean he's creative but he's not that creative. So all he does is grab God's good gifts And sin is parasitic, so it latches on to the good gifts that God has given us. And then it either exaggerates those gifts or diminishes them. And it pulls us away from Jesus so that we try to become self-sustaining on our own, self-sufficient, mistrustful of Jesus. And so what do I mean by it exaggerates or it diminishes? Uh, So pride. Um, Paul continually throughout the scriptures spoke of how he was proud of the church. You know, the pride isn't a bad thing. We're, we're proud of our children. I was proud of Matt Nason last week. He graduated from police academy. It was big time. But pride, when, when it's exaggerated, when we only trust in ourselves, when we look away from God, then pride becomes sinful. See, Satan's really not that creative. Adultery. 
adultery is, is what God has given us in a good gift of, of marriage. Adultery is like exaggerated, right? And so it's, I'm gonna reject God's reality of one man and one woman for all of life. By the way, it works, people. You wanna know what doesn't work? Everything else. My wife was talking to a guy this last week and she's a domestic um, adoption worker and she said, <laughs> she said, this guy, she said, I don't know if he was strung out or what, but he was going on and on and he said, I just got all these babies' mamas and I got all these kids and it's just a mess, it's just dramatic. And my wife said, yeah, that sounds like a mess. That's what sin brings into our lives when we say, God's plan shouldn't really be trusted. God really doesn't know what he's doing. One man, one woman for life, that sounds boring. No, it's not boring. It's good. It's God's good gifts. You say, well, how, how does that work? So sin is parasitic. It exaggerates. Sometimes it diminishes. So when we fall into the trap of being fearful of men. What are we doing? We're diminishing God's glory. We're saying man is more glorious than God. Sin works its way into our lives. It's parasitic. It exaggerates God's good gifts. It diminishes God's good gifts. And we need to be able to recognize the idols in our life and the sin that's in our life and begin to root it out by reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel. Remember, every time you sin, it represents unbelief in the gospel. I don't mean unbelief on a catastrophic level, like, like uh, I'm not saved anymore, and I, I'm not going to spend eternity with Jesus. I don't mean it in that way. But every time you sin, ultimately, you're declaring, God, you're not good. God, you're not great. God, you're not glorious. This thing, person, individual, whatever is. And we need to learn to look at our lives in order that we can root those sins out and remind ourselves how amazing and glorious the gospel and Jesus Christ truly are. Jesus isn't ashamed of us, but he's also defeated death. He's defeated death. I said it's so much bigger than just Easter. I don't mean just Easter, but you know what I mean, that cultural tradition, like let's go to church, let's do the whole cross resurrection thing, let's go find some Easter eggs and, and, and have a good meal. No, no, it's all day long, all year long, Jesus has defeated death. That means when you sin, whatever you sinned yesterday, I want you to think back, what was the sin yesterday? You're like, you've got something, top of your head, I don't wanna know it. You've got something top of your head, you wouldn't share it. When you think about that sin, is it a sin that you say over and over again, I just don't know if I'm ever gonna outgrow this. I just don't know, this is just who I am. No, Jesus has defeated death. That means the Holy Spirit who is alive and at work in you is the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, which if Jesus has defeated death, and you're co-heirs with Christ, he's your brother, that means Jesus has your back in such a way that there is no sin that can enter into your life that you cannot overcome because of the blood of Jesus. That means that whole, that whole Popeye routine, you know, Papa, I am who I am. No, throw it out the window. You're not who you are. You are covered in the blood of Jesus. He is not ashamed of you, and he has defeated death. That means there... You can overcome anything. Not you, but the power of God who is at work in you. That should give us eternal hope that there is nothing that can come against us that we cannot overcome. That should cause our faith to grow. Jesus can use you. 
Jesus has defeated death. Finally, we know that Jesus is the older brother, folks, because he understands. Jesus understands. Listen to verses 16 through 18. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Talking about us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That big word propitiation, don't let it hang you up. It means to appease. It means that he has appeased the wrath of God. Now, some of you really struggle with this whole tension between how can God be loving and wrathful? And we've talked about this before, but the quick summary is there is no love without wrath. There is no, I'm just all about love, love, love. That is not love. If you murder my wife, and I say, no big deal. You can go free. You don't need to be prosecuted. What kind of love is that? No, love demands justice. And God is holy. God has created us. God has reached out His hand and created a world of people who he has opened up and said, I will be in relationship with you. And we have turned our back on him. We've said, no, I will be my own God. I will trust me and me alone. And God demands justice. And Jesus became that justice on our behalf. Listen, I don't know what you struggle with today, but I just want to end with this. And then we're going to take communion together. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, you're welcome at his table. You don't have to be a member of this church if you've bowed your knee to Jesus and you've recognized that he's the savior of the world and you've given your life to him and surrendered and said, I want to follow you all the days of my life, you're welcome at this table. But as we wrap up today, I want to ask you, as you think about this fact that Jesus understands, what part of your life do you struggle with mistrust? What part of your life do you go, I just don't know if anybody gets it. And when you say that or think that, you're really meaning God as well. What part of your life do you go, I just don't know? I want you to stop and think about Jesus is our perfect elder brother. Perfect in every way. Jesus is the only person in all of history, in all of humanity, who can legitimately say to any circumstance, I understand. The scriptures say he was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Think about it. Struggles from the beginning of his life. He was adopted. Joseph was his adopted father. It seems that maybe Joseph died early in his life. We don't know. Really a silence there. So he was completely dependent upon God. He worked for 30 years in a blue collar job what we would consider blue collar, probably more of a stonemason, I believe, a carpenter. 30 years. Do you struggle with wondering, God, do you know I'm out here laboring on your behalf? No one recognizes me. Jesus did it for 30 years. Perfect Savior of the world, 30 years. 
He was single all his life. You say, God, do you even see me? Do you even understand? Jesus was single 33 years. He was single. He understands. He understood the experience of loneliness and hunger and sorrow and pain and loss and being misunderstood and seeing all his friends and family walk away in the deepest, darkest moment of his life. He understands. In all of that, he was completely dependent upon the Father. He is merciful and faithful because he has walked in the shoes that you're walking in. And there's nothing you'll ever face in this life that, in which you can shake your finger at Jesus and say you don't understand. Because he's walked in your shoes. Wherever you are, wherever you have been, Jesus is there. And he promises to never leave you, to never forsake you. Jesus is our perfect elder brother because he's not ashamed of us. He loves us just as we are. Not only is he not ashamed of us, he's defeated death so that we can glorify God with our lives. And he understands. He understands. You know, maybe you're here today and you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus. There's no greater decision that you could make than to say, Jesus, man, I need you. I need you. Some of you might be tempted to think, you know what? I need him, but I just don't know if he'd accept me. There's just so much that I've done. There's so much guilt and shame. And like your life is just painted with all the sins and all the hurts and all the failures from your past. I want you to listen to the love that Jesus has for you. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus stood before Pilate. And, and Pilate stood, and, and Pilate just stood, and, and he looked at Jesus, and he just couldn't understand because the crowds hated him so badly. And Jesus was so humble. He didn't even give an answer for himself. Pilate's wife sent him a message that said, don't do anything to that innocent man. He has caused me a great disturbance last night. I've had dreams about him. And Pilate was so mixed in what to do and he called out to the people and listened to what he said. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And listen to what the crowd said. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Do you understand that those have to be some of the most ironic words to ever be spoken throughout all of history? His blood be on our heads and our hands. And what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And God said, you have no idea what you're speaking. But because I'm merciful and because I'm gracious, His blood is going to be on your head. His blood is going to be on your hands. And it's His blood, His perfect blood, that's going to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness and offer you forgiveness. His blood, that story 
is what we celebrate today through communion. We celebrate Jesus. He's not ashamed of us. He has defeated death and He understands. May He receive all the glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that we have time where we can pull away from the distractions of this world and be reminded of history. And of history that's not just past, but God, the way that you are at work today in and through our lives and the way that you have sealed our eternities because of Jesus. God, I pray for those who are here today who struggle to trust you. I pray that they would find perfect peace in you, Jesus. In your life, your death, your resurrection, and the fact that you have not left us alone. God, I pray for believers who are here. I pray that today would be just a reminder to them that they would never forget that you are a brother, that you have our back, that you're beside us, that we're co-heirs with Christ. And God, for those who don't know you today, I pray that they would find a friend, that they would talk with me, that they would not go to sleep tonight without settling the question, who is my eternal brother? Do I know Jesus? Am I following him? Have I given my life to him? Jesus, may you be glorified as we're reminded now, as we take communion, as the band comes forward and we're reminded of, our per- of your perfect sacrifice for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus took the bread with his disciples and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup And he declared that he wouldn't drink it again until he came into his Father's kingdom. We take the bread and we tear a piece and we remember Jesus' body broken, not just for the sins of the world, for your sins, for my sins. And as you dip it in the cup, we're reminded of his blood on our head and on our hands that, yes, cover us from all our unrighteousness. I invite you, his table is open. Come worship him at his table.